You're listening to The Driven, the podcast that gives you the news and the views, the ins and the outs on electric vehicles. The Driven is presented by Giles Parkinson, the editor of Renew Economy and The Driven websites, and is brought to you by ZeroMo, a non-profit initiative helping transition to battery-powered lawn and gardening equipment and electric vehicles using 100% renewable energy. Hello and uh, welcome to a very special episode of The Driven Podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the founder and editor of The Driven website. And we're here at the University of Technology in Sydney. We're just completing the final session, or just about to launch into the final session of a two-day conference, the Electric Transition, Electric Vehicle Transition Conference. And it's been a fantastic two days. Um, a lot to discuss. We've learnt a lot. Um, we've heard about policy and uh, politics. We've heard, heard from key financial and energy institutions, the networks, the energy retailers, the charging people, the software people, and lots of key advisors and analysts and um, thought leaders. So now it's time to finish up with a bit of a recap on the two days and look forward to what we should be thinking about into the future and some other ideas. And to do that, we're joined by um, three very special people, um, Paul Fox, Stephanie Bashir, and Bayad Jafari. Please make them welcome. Guys, you've got one and a half minutes each to tell us who you are, what you do, and why you're here, just to set the scene, and then we'll go into the discussion per se. Stephanie. Uh, Stephanie Bashir. I uh, am principal of Nexa Advisory, uh, focused on providing uh, policy advice to accelerate the energy transition, and that is also for sectors that are converging, such as the transportation sector. Paul Fox. I'm Paul Fox, I'm from EV Networks, and we're a dedicated builder, owner, operator of public charging networks. Um, very focused on the customer experience and the site host experience. We can also host other people's charges on our network, and uh, I'm pleased to announce that we, uh, to, uh, that we uh, re- received uh, $15 million from Arena. And uh, this is the announcement, because we, we didn't do any other announcement apart from this one. So. I, well, congratulations, Paul. Yeah, that's very good. <laughs> Although, without wishing to sound too grumpy, the announcement did get circulated by the minister's office to other newspapers the other day. But there you go. But we're still pretty happy about it anyway. Yeah, this so, is our announcement. <laughs> this is your announcement. That's your part of the announcement. And we'll actually get back into that later on because it's pretty interesting. It's a pretty interesting deal. Um, Behad, please introduce yourself. Yes, I'm Behad Jafari. I'm the CEO of the Electric Vehicle Council of, of Australia. So we're a peak body representing the industry. Our work is focused on supporting investment and growth for electric vehicles, both in terms of investment and job creation for the industry, but certainly also through market uptake. Fantastic. Look, let's just have a recap on what the most interesting parts, what was your big takeaway so far from the conference? Stephanie? Yeah, so today really um, the main takeaway for me was how do we integrate the electrification of transport with the energy sector? There was a lot of discussion about um, integration of the the distributed energy resources um, and EVs are seen as part of that mix and uh, basically all day there was a bit of a touch and actually quite a big focus on the electricity uh, side of uh, electric vehicles. Paul, what was your uh, main take out? I think from the last couple of days, uh, I mean, there's a lot of 
There's a lot of fellow climate warriors in the room and, and also energy wonks. And today we, we kind of slipped back into <laughs> Is it a safe mixture? To a certain extent. Um, but there was some really interesting stuff that came out yesterday as well. It's like, how do we communicate to the rest of the world? And uh, uh, how do we put the emotion, and I'm sort of quoting people who are still in the room here, how do we put the emotion into how do we communicate to the rest of the world about what we're trying to achieve? And I think a lot of that is about clean air and public health because they're things that people can relate to very easily, much more easily than they can relate to energy or, or sea levels, uh, unfortunately. Yeah, that's been an interesting point made. Um, Bayard, I guess another one, or you, you tell me maybe your, your big takeout was, and we can probably discuss some other things as, yeah. as well. Happy to. Well, first of all, I should say congratulations to you and the team on a fantastic conference the last two days, um, because it answers the question for me, which is it's the work that we do in the EV Council, something that you would think would be obvious when you're talking about electric vehicles, which is the need for cross-sector collaboration. The last two days we've heard from car companies, energy companies, infrastructure groups, software providers, and really the, the big challenge here is that it's not only something difficult a sector is trying to get through, but it's something difficult a lot of sectors are trying to get through together for the very first time. And it requires all of the voices, it requires that collaboration, and it requires people who don't usually speaking who don't usually speak to each other to start speaking to each other. It's interesting, isn't it? And it's been fantastic to hear from all those different sectors and sort of all that preparation, the collaboration that's going on. But the missing link, and it was drawn to a couple of times actually through the through the conference, uh, most notably by Mark Butler. I found Mark Butler's speech um, fantastic, and we're also going to be putting that up on the website too, so people can listen to it who weren't already here. Um, an interesting recap on what happened in the last election and what basically happened to um, the EV policy. I mean, imagine a different world now if we're sitting with a government that was looking with a dedicated policy, not just for electric vehicles, but also for renewable energy. But he made the really interesting point that um, electric vehicles don't have the same resonance necessarily as renewable energy for the consumers. Um, I find that really interesting. I'm not too sure whether he is quite right. I just look at the take-up of the driven and the amount of interest that's out there and, and, and the number of people I talk to who are really interested in electric vehicles. But, um, but is that an issue? And if it is an issue, how do we go about that? Look, I think the, the how going about it, and I'll let you in a little bit of a secret, in when we write out the playbook for how to start addressing electric vehicles, whether in a policy sense and a public sense, a lot of the things we actually stole from what worked in rooftop solar. And for a while, there were people like myself in the rooftop solar world writing in the AFR, pontificating about policy and climate change and all the other important things. And then eventually, people's neighbours started to get one. And they would have a conversation about, what's that? Saves me bill, saves me my energy bill. Fantastic, I want to get one as well. And now we have one of the world's highest uptakes of rooftop solar. So it really is about how can we get to the point where they're on the road. Somebody, one of your neighbours has one, one of your friends has one. And then that resonance really starts to build. People like me can only go so far in the resonance game. Yeah, I, I mean, cars, cars are much sexier than solar panels. I mean, let's face it. Um, but... But but also, you know, what really started to drive rooftop solar, uh, solar was was you know, either a big subsidy or just as the subsidies were taken away, the price just went through the floor. Yeah. And so it was a no-brainer to put solar on your roof, despite the fact that energy is typically a very low-engagement product. Um, I think with vehicles, we've potentially got a high-engagement product. We've got some great stories about yeah. why people should be doing, doing it, and we've Got a couple of years now before they're at first point parity, but we're already seeing from some, several of the 
presentations over the last few days for high mileage fleets, for council fleets, people like that, they make sense right now. So yeah, let's see them on the road and it, that will spread the word. Yeah. Yeah. Stephanie, how do we get to the consumer? Look, I think, um, you know, it, there's a lot of talk about technology being a disruptor. <coughs> it's actually not so much the technology itself, but it's mm. how we turn it into a value for the customer to see something that resonates with them. And obviously, consumers are not homogenous, so everyone's different. We all have different needs and wants. And it's about creating that value that is going to resonate. And there was a lot of talk this today about uh, finding the emotions that speak to different um, customer groups. And it is something that we are going to have to try and change the narrative of EVs. And we have started to with the public health, public air, um, you know, the value of making sure you integrate your EV to get a better deal. Um, but I think there are so many different components and there's a lack of knowledge on uh, the benefits of EVs to customers. And it is everyone's role to create that awareness and to create that knowledge and, and make it mainstream. I think Stephanie makes a really good point there and usually the line of questioning that we get about EVs seems to come from a place of why not leave good enough alone? And because we've been doing things a certain way for the past century, we just assume things are good enough. We had some pretty outrageous media coverage this morning of, well, could EVs actually be dirty because they use coal-fired power? You know, what we fail to recognise is Australia already has one of the least efficient, energy efficient forms of transport in the developed world. It's not like we're doing a really fantastic job and everything's great. People are getting sick. We're sending naval ships out to the Middle East to protect our oil lines. This is a really terrible thing hanging over us and EVs are not only providing new benefits but they're removing old negative impacts as well. It's interesting and I'd like to get onto that, um, that topic a bit later but just to sort of um, rule off on this one though, um, you talked Paul about um, um, and, and, and Bayard also about the, about the solar industry and it became a bit of a no-brainer. Mm -hmm. Now do we have to wait, well, we've, got, we've heard various predictions this last couple of days about when that transition point is going to happen with electric vehicles for fleets that might already be there if you get your mind across the upfront the ticket price and think about whole of, whole of life costs. Um, other forecasts are for the next five, six or seven years. Do we have to wait till then to, the, um, to get that mass uptake? And what resources do we have now to actually try and accelerate that early adopter? Do we just rely on the early adopters and the people who have got the extra money? Um, what do you think, Paul? I, I think we've got to get vehicles out on the road, quite simply. Yeah. And, and I think there's you know, there's, there's lots of efforts around around car sharing and uh, government fleets like in the ACT and so forth um, to, to, to get them out there. Uh, you know, perhaps one of our constraints is simply getting hold of the vehicles. Like the, there's waiting lists on, on getting the vehicles that have been homologated for, for the Australian market. Um, you know, I really do feel that people being able to see charges out there and being able to see the vehicles out there is going to make a, a big difference because there's, there's latent there's latent demand, I think, out there. So, um, you know, are, are these people early adopters or are they just people that are lucky enough to be looking for their next car or be delaying their next car until such time as there's one that they can buy? Well, I think there's a few people so out there like that. Yeah, you know, we're, the, we're, the yeah. normal petrol car sales are down 18%. Mm. Um, Bayard, how do you look at this over the next couple of years? We don't have a government which has any special plans for the electric vehicle transition at the moment. So what are those things that you're looking to do over the next couple of years? Really, our goal for the short term is preparation. 
So when we talk about where we'll be at 2030, if that's 100%, 50%, 20%, 10%, really what we're asking ourselves is between now and 2023, 2025, how much preparation have we done? So when that tipping point occurs, we can ride up you know, the S-curve as quickly as possible. And if we haven't done enough, if we're only at you know, 0.2% where we are today come 2025 and we start at that time, well, we're going to be playing catch up for an extra five, seven, nine years. Mm. I think our NJ's report said basically our tipping point will be nine years later than everyone else if we don't prepare for it today. Mm. So whether it's through policy, whether it's through finding other means to attract people to invest in the area, it is a what does preparation need to look like to ensure that when cost parity comes, a, we get the supply of the vehicles, and that's really the tough one for us without mm. regulations and policies, because the reality is for a car company, they have to sell an electric vehicle in other markets in the world, whereas they would like to sell an electric mm -hmm. vehicle in Australia. So until we turn the key to have to, it's going to be tougher. Um, but there are other me measures that we can take to really provide whether it's businesses, investors with that confidence to say, I'm going to come and put money in the EV mm. sector here in Australia, because I know that ramp up is going to come. Yeah. Fleet buying. Fleet buying is that you know uh, that's got to be a, a big, yeah. a big, a big push here, and I'm not sure we can expect it from the federal government at the moment. Although I know they are. They're working on a strategy, so... Uh, and we'll, we'll wait and see what the strategy is next year. Stephanie, it sounds like um, it's a bit of a party happening, but it might have been delayed. <laughs> yeah, well, th that's correct. <laughs> and, um, you know, if I look at other industries that have had disruption, when we look at, you know, basically taxi and Uber, or we look at Netflix and mm. blockbuster videos, or we look at the entertainment industry around music... You know, you all you could see a pattern, which is not so much the technology itself, but it's adding that value mm. of convenience and price that has made people shift so quickly. Um, it's always, you know, what's in it for me kind of question. And so when we get to that point with with EVs, and there's more mainstream out out in the on the roads, as as Paul mentioned, and people are driving and they see, you know, oh there's so many of them, I think that will drive that whole, you know, how, how am I going to get one? Mm -hmm. Bayard, you mentioned the article in The Australian um, talking about, you know, how claiming that electric vehicles are actually more dirtier than petrol and diesel cars um, and about an extraordinary amount of infrastructure that's required to support the rollout, and I might get Paul to address that in a moment. But it has been mentioned a couple of times. How much is the disinformation, we saw that during, we, I mean, heard from Mark Butler, we saw that during the federal election campaign, quite extraordinary. You know, kangaroos are going to be too big for electric cars, people preferring to die in the ditch rather than buy an electric vehicle, prefer to walk to Wagga Wagga and God knows what else. I mean, it was, it's, it's, it was insane, but it was said, and it seems to have had an impact. I mean, how much of an impact has it had and how, apart from everyone starting to read Renew Economy in the Driven, do we actually address that? I will say for one thing in terms of things that were said during the election this week, I've got 15 million reasons to forgive the federal government. <laughs> that, that sort of change is clearly coming, you know, it is clearly there. Look, the reality is it's, and whether you're talking about workplaces, teams, anything else, the negatives are always the best recruiters, right? So for every negative piece that's out there, that's going to stick because you know, it's just something about people they quite like seeing something bad out <laughs> in the world and I think really a we as an industry have so many fantastic stories to tell you know we have some of the world's um, best EV charging manufacturers you know based out of Australia we have great new businesses setting things up you know rolling out charging networks employing people and these are jobs that are going to be lasting for the next century 
you know, not trying to protect them for the next five years right before they die. So really our priority is, A, we can either keep complaining about and trying to push back against some of the negative commentary or just be our own best cheerleaders and be talking about this change that is occurring as a country that, as I mentioned before, is just about to send warships out to protect our oil lines. It makes a lot of sense for us to move to electricity that we make ourselves and that we're the entrepreneurs in and that the rest of the world wants to buy off of us. Well, you hear so much about fuel security. You hear so much about sort of health, um, not just about the climate issues, um, also about the personal health. And, and maybe we should see some adver adverts along that. I've, I remember seeing an, um, an ad for a, um, a solar company in the US and it was quite a funny sort of one. It was sort of saying, well, look, you won't have solar panels to save the dolphins and things like that. And, and the lady was saying, well, I don't actually care about the dolphins, but um, I just want to save money. So that's why I'm going to get yeah. solar panels. It was better than I've just described it. But, um, um, but, but maybe personal health is, is something that, um, that people um, should, be, um, should be reinforced on. Paul, um, there was, we sort of discussed today this question about, you know, one of the things in this article was about this huge amount of infrastructure yeah. that was required for the rollout of electric vehicles. Now you're, as Bayaz just mentioned, um, one of the companies that's you know, really taking a world leadership um, position on, on, on charging. Can you just clarify exactly how much is needed and um, how we can actually do it a lot better than what's being said? Yeah. Um so I guess, you know, one, number one, I'd acknowledge, and I think a few people have said it, that there's, there's unknowns about how and where people will charge. And so uh, I probably tend towards then that says, you know, people won't earn, own personal vehicles anymore and because the cost of uh, on-demand electric and autonomous Uber will be incredibly cheap. And so, you know, for people that own, you know, a low, you know, car that's not so exciting, like a Yaris, I'm sorry to any Yaris owners, you know, what, why own, why spend that money on a car when you can have, you know, all you can eat transportation for a fraction of the cost every year. But, so let's just put that aside for a moment. So there's like eight and a half thousand service stations in Australia. Um, but people are going to be charging at home rather than maybe going to service stations. So and you can argue about what percentage of that would be at home or in the workplace. But you probably could argue that you'll need, you might not need the same number of bowsers, but you might need that amount of, of coverage so that people feel like they're you know, no more than 15 minutes away from a charging station. So you could use that as, as one form of proxy. But those stations will be in all kinds of locations. They'll be in locations where you're going to go anyway, potentially, rather than locations where you go just you know, to fuel, as we do today. We're forced to go to a special place with a big tank of flammable liquid buried underneath the ground. We won't be forced to do that in the case of um, an electrical recharge. So, but you probably need that kind of coverage. So I think that's a reasonable way to look at it is, you know, that, that sort of number, but a lot of them will be slower charges. They won't be 350 kilowatt charges. They'll be 50 to 150 kilowatt charges. Um, I don't think there'll be a lot of ACs. You see ACs you know, lying abandoned in the US now because people can get a fast charge, so they don't, they don't bother connecting to the ACs. And then on the National Highway Transportation Network, we, I had a poor intern sit uh, with Google Maps and divide the land transportation network up into 75 kilometre long chunks and work out how many uh, stations there should be and then said, okay, well, if we put in you know, an absolute bare minimum of coverage, a couple of 350 kilowatt charging heads at each 
of those, uh, I think it was, we ended up 360, Andrew. I can't remember what our final number was, but, you know, of the order of 360 to cover the National Land Transportation Network. That's like, goes all the way around, you know, the, the big map that you see when you're driving on the highway and it, you know, when you so, were kids. So that's yeah. well short of $7 billion. Uh, it's probably less than half a billion dollars. <laughs> that's well short. <laughs> yeah. Can I just touch on the, uh, even if it was $7 billion, I think let's be yeah. clear about the costs here. Australia spends a net of $16 billion every year to import transport fuels to this yeah, country. Yeah. $16 billion every year to import transport fuels. So that's obviously much more than $7 billion, which is more than we're going to spend. And that is already money that we're spending. We're just giving it to another country. And the idea of, I wish it was $7 billion, because that's $7 billion of private companies investing in Australia for the first time, as opposed to sending it to where I came from, coming back to the Middle East and giving the money to those people. So it's, a, this is, it's one of the few areas, and the, you know, this is this astounding thing about the broader climate discussion, where economic investment is somehow spun as a bad thing. Yeah. It's a great thing. That's Australians building things. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes this argument that, oh, but we'll have to spend a lot to upgrade the grid. And I, and I thought there were a couple of interesting numbers in the last couple of days was, was one, I think it was like it would cost, each, each car costs $1,000. And then I saw another slide, which Christian put up, which, which was each car is worth 5000 to the utility. <laughs> so I was kind of like, okay, I'm not sure, quite sure how I reconcile those two numbers. Yeah. But, but, yeah. but, but here's, here's kind of what I do know is, is we've heard all about, you know, their storage on wheels. But we can also say, well, actually, uh, a lot of them won't be, there won't be vehicles at home because people have given up their vehicle for, for ultra cheap uh, on-demand autonomous transportation. Mm. And so they'll be being charged in, in you know, charging uh, parks out in the burbs somewhere and, and coming in and out, you know. So... You know, it could look very, very different than it does today. So just to assume that you, know, you, you substitute every um, ICE vehicle for an EV and that's what the future will look like, that is the, the most unlikely outcome in the future. I think, I think we, we are in a world where the sectors are very siloed and yeah. all of a sudden there's this need for integration between electricity and transport. And, you know, it's not something that um, is, that the, basically the electricity sector is used to in terms of their planning and forecasting and, and looking forward. And as, you know, what we heard the last couple of days, so many scenarios could play out. Mm. Um, but it's really about collaboration. Mm. And it's really about having the conversation and being able mm. to, think outside the regulatory framework and think outside this, you know, mindset of, but this is how we've always done it, to how can we work together to, uh, towards a common goal? Actually, I, I just thought of it because you, you think about is, is the past a good uh, predictor of the future and, and um, what, what's the story? Uh, uh, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. And, and I think there's a couple of good rhymes. One of them is, is solar made a lot of sense um, pretty damn quick and changed very quickly and much faster than anyone had forecast. But then there's this other one, which is air conditioners, which somebody mentioned, uh, Rachel mentioned today, about air conditioners. And um, when people started forecasting air conditioners, air conditioners... Uh, they, fork, they, put, they drew a line on the chart and they said, wow, this is going to be a massive impact on the grid. 
But what they didn't do was take into account that the air conditioners were going to become four times more efficient mm. over that same period. And so we actually ended up with a massive overbuild of the network justified by these air conditioners and the technology just hopped over the top of it. And that's what worries me about sort of history rhyming, if not repeating, because Australia has assiduously built a very big and very dumb grid over the last 40 years, and we're paying through our teeth for it still. So really, all of a sudden, we're asking, and you talked about this siloed effect, we're asking, asking for this integration, and we're asking for this shift. And, and we're asking for more investment. We are, but we're, aren't we asking just for smart investment, though? Because that's going to be the key. I mean, and, and is electric vehicles the thing that can actually deliver it? to change people's mindset. Okay, let's start being really clever about this because a lot of people have thrown solar on the roof or put a battery in the house mm. um, and it hasn't really been smart up to date. People are starting to think about it being smart. So can electric vehicles be that missing link? I mean, the, 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 vehicles, the vehicles are natively digital. You know, they are smart. A lot of them are getting either Apple or Google built into them. There's those scary guys that steal all your data again. So the vehicles are actually pretty smart. So you can make an argument about whether you need smart uh, charges or, or home charges, in particular, I'm talking about here, uh, versus having a smart vehicle and setting up, you know, the appropriate communications protocol. We also need the market structures in place around that, and so the sorts of things that Phil Blythe and GreenSync are doing, and, and others around being aggregators in the market. Um, I think there's this role for perhaps for aggregators of these electric vehicles, whether they be owned by consumers or owned by fleets. Um, but it all comes down to, you know, we did this a lot uh, at a when I was at AGL, was, you know, putting smarts on anything costs, you know, more than you think and, and maintaining it costs more than you think and it's really got to be justified by the use case and, and it's not clear to me how that plays out. But I think there's, there's so many parallels with what we've been working with in, in DERs, uh, aggregation of DERs and so forth that could apply. I think we've been very overly uh, risk averse in the electricity sector just because of the way that the regulatory framework is set up around the reliability, about security. And look, don't get me wrong, you know, reliability and security are paramount uh, when it comes to energy. It's still an essential service. But I think where we're moving towards is there are some real technologies that will help us be smarter in the way we can avoid investment. Uh, we can impl uh, basically implement the right pricing structures. You know, we do have very dumb tariffs in our industry. And it's really about taking those, um, you know, traditional way of doing things, as I keep saying, to thinking slightly differently um, and thinking more about the sectors that are interacting with the electricity market and saying and treating them as, as perhaps whether it's a different class of customer or uh, you know classification in this kind of conversation becomes very important. Um, but really moving to away from tariffs completely and started thinking about smarter ways of pricing so that customers can benefit from whether it's the EVs, whether it's from demand response services, when you're aggregating the load from EVs. Um, there's a lot of different solutions coupled together that will help avoid these overly risk investments that will need to occur. 
Paul, here's a tricky one for you. Um, one of the um, owners of um, your company, EV Networks, is Trevor yeah. St. Baker. Yep. And um, he's made a bit of a name for himself um, over the last uh, couple of months or the last year. He's a de- great defender of coal-fired generation and um, seems to have a bit of a flat-earth um, view of the future of energy. Yet he's also a big in- um, investor in innovative technology. So he's an investor in EV Networks. He's a backer of Tritium. Is he just confused or is he just a good businessman? Um He's definitely a good businessman. I mean, he, whatever you think of Trevor. And he's also the, you know, one of the most kindest people and a, and a true gentleman if you ever meet the guy. So I, I'm always amused by his, his, uh, the public view of him. Uh, and Baron always gives you this idea of some ruthless guy, but he's just, he's just not like that. But he is, he is a very shrewd businessman and he's picked um, trends uh, multiple times, like four times in the past, and, and you probably heard most recently, you know, the, the shell offer for ERM. So he's very, he is a very good businessman. Uh, he does have an investment in coal. Uh, incidentally, though, I think he bought that for a million dollars. That's about one three hundredth of what he's invested in clean energy. Um, notwithstanding that, it, you know, it grew to a, a much greater value. Um, you know, society, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't, he, he has his own views about why it is important. Uh, for him, it is about air quality and public health and so forth. Um, I, you know, I recognise that you know, there's perhaps some tension in, in, in that view With of things. Generator. Yeah. Yeah. But, I, but, but I'll say this, he, like I said, he's one of the biggest mm. investors in clean energy in Australia. If you take out all the debt and talk about people putting real risk capital in, He's one of the, you know, the, he's probably one of, or if not one of the biggest investors in clean energy. I'm wondering, Bayard, um, this sort of conflict or this tension between sort of new industries and incumbent industries and the way that Trevor St. Baker actually sums that up. He's sort of invested in, 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 in coal and look, okay, he made a very good deal in that one, but he wants to keep it going because it makes a lot of money. Um, he's done very well out of the, sale, the sale of his gas business, which is the RM Power, and it's really interesting, as you say, that Shell's coming in. But... Electric vehicles is challenging a bunch of different industries. It's challenging the trillion dollar petroleum liquid fuels industry. It's challenging a trillion dollar stationary energy industry. It's challenging a trillion dollar automotive industry. How much of those tensions are still playing against it? Or to what extent do you think, given the world, you know, what's happening around the world is that that elastic's actually kind of being broken now and it's kind of charging on? It's a good question. I'll start with the previous point, and uh, I will touch on Trevor St. Baker quickly as well, although I expect you would have expected that I wouldn't, um, (laughs) because I'm always a little bit fascinated, and I can understand why this happens when these people seem like figures rather than actual human beings of... It's interesting when I read about his, you know, the part of the business that I, you know, I don't subscribe to, the coal part of he must have some type of hold or sway. Some of the best Australian research in the about the electric vehicle sector, which is work that the EV Council did, was funded by Trevor and Baker, you know, and he's been a very big advocate and proponent for quite some time. And, you know, that it's not like the government's poured a whole bunch of stuff into, into this area. So I think it's it's an interesting look at, well, like, what type, what type of sway do different types of people hold? If the type of mythologizing, you know, that that you read sometimes, well, we would have had fantastic EV policy in Australia already as well, because he's certainly been a proponent there. On the other side of this, in um, in the conflicts that occur in the other parts of entrenched industry, it's one of the benefits for us in Australia in being about ten years behind the rest of the world is that a lot of those fights had been had. 
and whether it, the people who are directly involved in EV, whether it's uh, automotive companies, you know, the, a lot of the energy companies, they may have quibbled in Europe, they may have quibbled it in the US, and you know, they've, they've had their moment, they see that this is their future, and we're an organisation that represents car companies, recommend, represents everyone that you think would usually be the blocker, they're actually saying, no, we're, we're there. It's you guys here in Australia that are, that are behind. Now, is there still you know, some tension there with the traditional sort of, you know, the fossil fuel companies, the, you know, the oil uh, companies? Sure, certainly, but I think what we're seeing that be reflected by is sometimes, you know, by some advocates, a bit of misinformation, um, but it doesn't appear to be a top order priority for them. I think they've got other markets that they focus their, you know, their negative attention on. Um, overwhelmingly, and this is some of what we saw when uh, time came around for the federal election, and particularly when particular media outlets were trying to write negative stories. If you look through the negative stories that were written by media outlets, there weren't any industry representatives actually standing by any of those claims. And it's not for lack of trying. People called around and asked, and every single person said, no, the future's electric. What are you people talking about? The oil companies there, they were saying, we may try to hold on to what we've got for as long as possible, but we know that this is the future now. Australia's way behind. We've heard a lot in the, in, about the potential delays and potential impediments. Let's just look, be really positive now and just think, well, how quickly can this happen? Uh, you hear um, predictions from people like Tony Sieber from Stanford University, by 2030, you might not own a car, everything will be electric, everything will be shared. Um, I'm not too sure whether we're going to get there that fast, that quickly, and, and, and in all parts of the world. But um, what's your most optimistic prediction for this transition, Stephanie? Oh, uh, very good question. <laughs> if I had a crystal ball. <laughs> uh, well, I guess... Um, you know, you could think about it from the perspective of there's two imperatives right now, uh, public charging and price point. Um, and they're really the concerns of motorists in Australia. So uh, we are seeing already private investment happening in the infrastructure, uh, charging uh, thanks to EV networks and, and ChargeFox and there'll be others, um, especially in multi-dwellings and commercial sites. And then there's, there'll be the price, um, the price point, which is really all about the manufacturers coming into Australia and bringing the models that are going to, you know, make it work for the average drivers. Um, and so, if if we look at that, I think, you know, I I would actually think that in a really good case scenario by 2030. Uh, the acceleration of EVs will take up um, very, very quickly. And I think that it, it will take the fleets and the infrastructure networks and the industry in terms of engagement to really collaborate all together to make that happen. I'm very optimistic about that, and I think it will happen. Mm -hmm. I, I, I um we, we keep, keep getting asked for forecasts, and I, and I, <laughs> I say we're not a forecaster, we're a builder. Um, and, but you know, I, I, I do think a bit about those forecasts, and, and so I think it's the, um, uh, the AMO's moderate scenario, and it's like 400,000 uh, EVs on the road by uh, 2008. And I kind of looked at that and went... 2008? Sorry. Uh, two, yeah, yeah. Okay, back in time. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> 2028, okay. So, so basically 10 years out, if you like. And, and um, 
so yeah, uh, 444,000. And I kind of look at that number and say, actually, there, um, e either that number is wrong or the breakup of that number is wrong. Because I think there will be at least that number of electric kilometers, but possibly uh, uh, two thirds the number of vehicles because there's gonna be you know, about 180,000 Ubers, electric Ubers, uh, doing a massive portion of those kilometers. Um, but what that actually might mean is the actual number of kilometers is much larger because th those, it's gonna be so dirt cheap that there'll be even you know, more people traveling electric kilometers in these electric Ubers. And so, whereas you know, the AMO forecast is saying this number of kilometers, I think it'll actually be much, much higher simply because those kilometers will be served by very cheap electric Uber rides rather than by people owning a vehicle which is sitting in their garage most of the time. Say this about forecasts, whether terrible or fantastic, what all forecasts and projections do is to take a scenario and say, here's what we think will happen inside of that scenario. So I, I don't do my own forecasting, I you know, steal other people's work. But in my work, what I'm much more interested in is molding that scenario. Mm -hmm. And so any good economist will say, well, by 2030, 2040, whatever year, we're gonna expect all of these things will stay the same and this is the forecast mm -hmm. inside it. Say rubbish, things will continue to change because there are people like us here making sure that they continue to change throughout that time. And that is certainly the status quo in most of the rest of the developed world and some parts of the developing world where not only are they taking action on things like a transition to EVs, but they're constantly accelerating that action as well. This is some of the going back to the issues of supply that we discussed before that we have in Australia. When we get vehicles allocated to us, some other country will accelerate what it's doing. They'll tighten the standard, they'll increase their mandate, bring forward their mandate and say, sorry, you can't have those anymore. We have to take them somewhere else. And really, that's our work of making all of those projections rubbish yeah. because we just keep improving things so much. In fact, here's, here's one for you. Instead of drawing a roughly straight line, draw an exponential line because that's usually how it works out. Yeah. Yeah. And so that, that, would, that would be bringing it back tremendously, you know, uh, five years out. You're looking at no. three very optimistic people. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. But, 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 I mean, even in the next, you know, if, you, if we, we sit here again in a year's time, Wow, the, the number of models available on the, on the, you know, in the dealerships in a year's time, yeah. the number of charging stations out on our highways mm. and in our cities at that time, mm. it's going to be such a different picture. The public at large will just see it right in front of their face like that. Mm. It's going to be the very... The problem with ex exponential models, though, is that they tend to sort of go quite flat for a while before going, going up. So it's just a question of how long, how, how flat that will be and, and how long. But um... see my cash flow projection? No. <laughs> <laughs> so is anyone here going to buy another fossil fuel car? Buy no, another car looks... sounds like a strange concept in general. No, doesn't it? Right. I, I might download another app. Current car. <laughs> <laughs> okay, very good. Very good. Do we have Can any? We talk uh, about stranded assets. Yeah, the stranded <laughs> assets will be yeah, in the garage because it'll yeah. be more expensive to insure it than it would be yeah. to get a year's worth of, of rights. Yeah. Do we have any sort of um, quick um, questions or contributions from the floor here before we wrap up? Um, anyone interested in uh, putting in their two cents worth? Or even Bryce? No, that's okay. Dazzled to silence. Dazzled yeah. to silence, okay. Look, I think we're going to probably wrap it up there. Um, any final thoughts, guys, about um, what we need to do next time? Look, I just wanted to thank you for a, a great conference and, and thank you for inviting me to be part of your panel. Oh, no worries.
Paul. Oh, f fantastic conference. I'm glad. No, honestly, it is, and I'm really glad that uh, that you know you put the, this event together and that you're running the driven and and getting the conversation going. So yeah. I want to thank you for that. And you know, I think this. What, what I really like about this, someone. So someone said to me, "This is our opportunity to to get the utility in industry to give it to the oil industry," and you know. Beat both of them in a sense, so it's kind of a it's a very exciting time, I think, for clean energy and a great way to be involved in it. And Bayard, thank you very much for chairing some panels for us um, over the last couple of days, and uh, also being on this panel. And um, you're as optimistic for the future now as you might have been. Always, I mean, that optimism to me is more about how how confident am I that I will do a good enough job to make that change occur? And I think that's how we, you know, we can't be spectators. We are this industry. We need to be the ones driving it. If it does work or doesn't work, we can't point the finger at someone else. Um, so really, if you're not optimistic, I just say be more self-confident <laughs> because we can do all of these things. Well, look, thank you very much for the people attending to the conference. Thank you, everyone, for the speakers and the chairs. Thank you very much for the organisers. Um, thanks to Oliver at the back there for doing the audio-visual. Uh, thanks also to Anne for actually putting the uh, nuts and bolts of this conference together. It's been absolutely fantastic. Um, thanks very much to ABB for sponsoring the conference. Um, thanks, everyone, for being here. And uh, we hope to be back again next year and look forward to your feedback about how we can either make the conference bigger or improve it. And there's so much to talk about electric vehicles. We haven't even gone anywhere near autonomous vehicles. We haven't, haven't even gone anywhere near redesigning cities and thinking about what we're going to do with car parks and the future of everything's autonomous. There is so much more to talk about. Um, we haven't really t talked that much more about the consumer. An awful lot to talk about. Really look forward to your feedback. Thank you for being here. Thank you for the people on the podcast for listening. And um, bye for now. And please give this panel a nice hand to finish it off. Thank you. The Driven Podcast was brought to you by Zero Mo, the non-profit initiative that supports battery electric alternatives for lawn and gardening maintenance. Zero Mo helps transition to cleaner and quieter garden power tools and electric vehicles powered by 100% renewable energy. Visit zeromo.com.au and find out how you can make the switch to zero emission, petrol-free lawn and garden maintenance.